We are in uh, continuing our series that we've been in for the past couple weeks called Miracles and been encouraging all of you uh, to not only believe that God is a God of miracles, that he does miracles today, but encouraged you to write down what you're believing for. And you filled both of those walls up with what you are uh, believing God for. And I'm excited for that. I just thought I'd give you a a testimony someone shared with me of what God did in their life. And uh, a few weeks ago, uh, particularly one of the individuals was on the Brazil trip and I was talking to his wife and she said, while he was gone, he hadn't worked in a number of weeks. And so we were just kind of praying about what we should do and even kind of what bills we should pay and shouldn't pay. And so I didn't want to, I didn't want to make my husband worry. So I just prayed and said, God, I'm going to give our finances to you. And then when he returned, we talked and he said the same thing. Let's just trust God. Let's just believe him. And uh, they went to the post office uh, and there was a check waiting for them for $50,000 from an inheritance uh, that had got there. And it's pretty amazing uh, to see how God meets needs. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, that's really cool, but God hasn't done that for me. Um, and uh, I'm not saying that God's just going to magically give you $50,000, but I do am saying that God does meet our needs and he meets them in ways that are interesting and only ways that he can do it. And uh, I also know what some of you are thinking is, is that because I've read the board and some of you are thinking, I'm asking God for financial uh, blessing. I'm asking God for uh, to help get out of debt. I'm asking God to do something for me, and he hasn't quite done it yet. And you share a story with me about how God did that for someone, and they didn't even put it on the board. And uh, that leads us into what we're going to talk about today, is what do you do when you ask God to do something for you, and he does it for someone else before you, and you have to watch that. What is it like to watch God answer someone else's need that may be your need and you have to watch him do that before he does it for you and and you know that that person may not be as 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 faithful as you are may not be as as good as you are they may not have as good of attendance may not give as much you you know they may be a little bit rough around the edges and you watch God do something for them and you're thinking to yourself what in the world is going on why hasn't he done that for me what's wrong with me da 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 we all go through that and I want to share a story with you today that, that talks about that very thing, that we look at it and we see God answering someone else's request before he answers the other person. And the person that was waiting got to Jesus first. Sometimes if we're not careful, we will compare and prioritize our needs above other people because we ask him first and because there's a certain amount of circumstances in our lives that make us just move up the line, right, uh, for God to answer our prayer first. The story I want to share with you this morning is this. It's the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus. It comes from Luke chapter 8. And as you turn there, I just want to remind you of what a miracle is. We defined a miracle two weeks ago, and this is what it is. It's an event which unmistakably involves an immediate and powerful action of God designed to reveal his character and purposes. An event which unmistakably involves an immediate and powerful action of God designed to reveal his character and purposes. Miracles are for God's glory, for his purposes. He intervenes, and yes, we are the benefactors of them, but God does them so he will get the glory and other people will believe in who he is. Miracles are not solely for us, but it is an event in which unmistakably involves God's power and intervention into this world. And we'll see that in this story. So if you if you have your Bibles, it's Luke 8. We're going to read verses 40 through 56. Here's what it says. On the other side of the lake, the crowds welcomed Jesus because they had been waiting for him. Then a man named Jairus, leader of the local synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come home with him. 
His only daughter, who was about 12 years old, was dying. As Jesus went with him, he was surrounded by the crowds, and a woman in the crowd who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding, and she could find no cure. Coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe, and immediately the bleeding stopped. And Jesus asked, who touched me? Everyone denied it, and Peter said, Master, this whole crowd is pressing up against you. But Jesus said, Someone deliberately touched me, for I felt healing power go out of me. When the woman realized that she couldn't stay hidden, she began to tremble and fell to her knees in front of him. And the whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him and that she had been immediately healed. Daughter, he said to her, Your faith has made you well. Now go in peace. While he was still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and he told him, Your daughter is dead. There's no use in troubling the teacher now. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just have faith, and she will be healed. When they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the little girl's father and mother. And the house was filled with people weeping and wailing, but Jesus said, Stop the weeping. She isn't dead. She's only asleep. But the crowd laughed and mocked him because they all knew she had died. Then Jesus took her by the hand and said in a loud voice, My child, get up. And at that moment, her life returned. She immediately stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. And her parents were overwhelmed. But Jesus insisted that they not tell anyone what had happened. Pretty interesting story. And what we have is is we have Jesus who who comes across a lake. That's how the story opens up. He's on a boat. He's been doing ministry. He's been teaching. He's been healing people. And he gets to the other side of this lake, the other city. And there's people that are waiting for Jesus. He's become popular. People are, are just crowding all around, and there is a prominent figure who's waiting for Jesus, and his name's Jairus. We know he's prominent because he has a name. Anytime there's a name mentioned, that person has prominence. They have some, maybe even wealth. Jairus was the leader of the synagogue. He's like the pastor of the Orthodox Jewish church. He's responsible for preaching. He's responsible for caring for people. He's responsible for the business affairs of the church. He's well-known in the community. He probably has a certain level of wealth that other people don't enjoy. And he is waiting for Jesus. And he is absolutely desperate because his 12-year-old daughter, and Luke tells us it's his only daughter, is dying. The Bible tells us that he throws himself before Jesus on his knees and begs him to come. One translation, or excuse me, one gospel says he tells Jesus, if you could only come and lay hands on my daughter, then she would be healed. She's 12 years old. He is desperate. And Jesus agrees to go with him. And while he is on his way to Jairus' house, the Bible says the crowds, in some translations say, thronged him. Not thonged him. Thronged him. Okay, Thronged him. And that word literally means suffocated him. Like it would use the same word if a weed is suffocating the life out of a seed or, or another plant. They were all around him, constricting him. And it's so packed. Imagine you've ever gone to a concert or a sporting event and you're walking in or out. You There are so many people around you. You can't even move. You can't even raise your arms, right? My dad used to grab me by the nap of the neck or he'd put his finger in my belt loop when we were at the Cardinals game and he would just hold it so I couldn't get away because <laughs> the crowd's walking in and out of the game. This is how crowded it was. And he's on his way to Jairus' house because Jairus got there first. He's prominent. Jesus is responding to the need of his daughter. And all of a sudden, Jesus asked a a really interesting question. He says, who touched me? How many of you have ever been to that sporting event or concert and ever asked, who touched me? It's a ridiculous question. So ridiculous that Peter, who always talks, lets Jesus know how ridiculous it is. Hey, (laughs) 
What do you mean who touched you, Jesus? Do you not see and feel the people around you? But Jesus deliberately said this. No, 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 no. Someone deliberately touched me for I felt healing power go out of me. Out of all the people that touched Jesus, he says, who touched me? He wants to know who touched me. Interestingly enough, nobody touched him. They just touched his clothes. I don't always know when people touch my clothes. I know when people actually touch me. She's touched the hem of his garment. And it's this woman. It's at this moment in the story that that Jairus ceases to become the focal point. And this woman, this woman who's unknown, this woman who, who doesn't have a name, She doesn't have any prominence. She doesn't have any wealth. She's simply known as the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She has not been able to stop a flow of blood in her body for 12 years. It's either Mark or Matthew tells us that that she spent all of her money on doctors trying to get the bleeding stopped and she couldn't. She's weak. And on top of that, because she was bleeding, she was what's considered ceremonially and socially unclean. She could not touch anybody because she was unclean, nor would people touch her. In Jewish law, it said that while a woman was menstruating or on her period, she was unclean and no one could touch her and she could not touch anyone until she had not been bleeding for seven days. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but it's, it was how it was. So for 12 years, what does that mean? That means this woman is a social outcast. She's not allowed to go to parties. She's not allowed to have dinner at people's house. She's been marginalized, pushed off in society. She can't even come to church. She can't participate. She's unclean. She's not welcome. She's the person that when you walk down the street with your children, you pull them to the other side and say, do not touch her. Do not allow her to touch you. Because the moment she touched you, you were ceremonially unclean and could not participate socially or religiously. This woman had no business touching anyone, much less Jesus. But she's desperate. Interestingly enough, you find this this paradox, right, between Jairus, who's prominent. He's a man in that society. He has a prominent position. He's known, and he has a little girl, and he's desperate. And you have a woman who isn't known. His little daughter is 12 years old. She's been suffering with bleeding for 12 years. As long as this girl's been alive, this girl, this woman has been suffering. You have a known prominent figure who goes to Jesus and Jesus agrees. And you have someone who isn't known, but yet they are united. They are united in one reason and one thing only, and that is desperation. I think desperation at times is the ultimate leveling factor, isn't it? It's desperation is one thing we all share. Desperation does not pay attention to social class. Desperation does not pay attention to who you are, where you've come from, how much money you have or don't have. We all find ourselves in desperation. And it seems as if desperation brings us to the point of needing God, needing something, but desperately needing God. They are united in desperation. They have gone about it in two different ways because of their social status. This woman could not have appeared before Jesus. And what she decides to do is this is to make her way through this crowd of people choking and suffocating Jesus. And she touches the hem of his garment. That's the very bottom. As a matter of fact, what it means is is that a Jewish man, they wore tassels at the end of their garment. She said, if I could just but touch the tassel of his garment, then I could be healed. One of the gospels says she had in her mind, if I could but touch. And she was saying this over and over again, if I could but touch, if I could but touch his garment. 
and she touched the bottom of his garment, not the top. So what does that mean? She is crawling through this crowd of people trying to fight her way to Jesus. Dusty, dirty, probably being trampled on. People are probably parting like the Red Sea because they know who she is. If you've been bleeding for 12 years in a community and you're unclean, everybody knows who you are. She's the proverbial leper. Nobody will touch her. Imagine that for a moment. You've not been physically touched, and I don't mean sexually, for 12 years. No one has hugged you. No one has put their hand on your shoulder. No one has taken the time to even talk to you. You've not been able to come to any social gathering or a church. You're not able to do that. This is this woman. She doesn't have anybody to stand up for her. She doesn't have anyone to help her. I mean, we read about the paralytic, right? He had four people who ripped a hole in a roof to get him in front of Jesus. This woman has nobody. She has to fight her way. And she has no business touching Jesus. And she touches him. And Jesus says, who touched me? Interestingly enough is, why does he do this? Because the Bible says she's immediately healed. She could have gone on her own way. Who touched me? He wants to publicly know who touched him. Does he need to know? Not necessarily. The only reason he knows is because he felt healing virtue flow out of him. See, she believed. There was a kind of a superstition. She believed that if she could just touch his garment, then maybe she would be healed. She had an interesting view towards faith. Jairus, his view was, come lay hands on my daughter and she would be healed. This woman's like, I just got to touch his thread hanging off his body. Who touched me? Peter's like, Jesus, come on, man. We got to go. Jairus' daughter is dying, and you want to know who touched you? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Peter's Captain Obvious, right? That's what we're all thinking, too. What do you think Jairus is thinking while he's standing back watching this? Watching Jesus stop, thinking, oh, Jesus, please. Jesus, my daughter is dying, and you're going to stop and ask who touched you? Ridiculous. Don't you know I got to you first, Jesus? I threw myself before you. I I begged you and you said you would go with me and now you're stopping. For who? And finally, as this lady realized she could not escape the questions and everybody was denying it, she comes to Jesus trembling. Her plan was not to get in front of Jesus. Her plan was just to touch him and go on her way. She says it comes to Jesus trembling. She falls at his knees. She's, she's basically apologizing why she touched him. And here's why she's doing that. Because she broke the law. She broke the social law. She had no business. See, what they believed is that if you were unclean and you touched somebody else, your uncleanness would make that person unclean. What she realized was this, that when she touched Jesus, she did not make him unclean. He made her clean. Jesus wants to pause and teach this lady something. And one of the things he wants to do is he wants to tell her, it is not my garment. It is not my clothing that has healed you. It is me. He wants to tell all of us something too. Hey, all of you are unclean to some degree. All of you are unclean because of sin. That's what makes us ceremonially unclean. And what business do we have being in front of Jesus? Really none if it's based on merit and if it's based on good work. But what Jesus is telling us is we who are unclean can touch the one who is eternally clean and we don't make him unclean. He heals us and makes us clean, us acceptable, us beloved, and he brings us in. Our unclean, there's no sin that's greater than Jesus. None. 
I mean, you can bring everything to him and he will heal you and forgive you and make you clean. That's what he's saying. And we know this because of how he speaks to this woman. He loves her because he says, daughter, daughter. It's the only woman Jesus ever called daughter in the entirety of the Gospels. Daughter. I have some friends who are missionaries in Turkey, and they were telling me how they started ministering to people. They started teaching English classes and having some small groups, and they met this woman who, who got saved. And she got saved because she started reading the Gospels and seeing how Jesus treated women. And she went and told her friends, you've got to read this. You've got to see Jesus. He loves women. He loves women. See, when I look at this story and I see Jesus say, daughter, your faith has made you well. He's not only saying, hey, it isn't, it isn't my garment that healed you. I healed you. I healed you and I love you. And what he does is he doesn't just stop her physical bleeding. He stops her emotional, psychological, and spiritual bleeding. For the last 12 years, she's been marginalized. There's no one that's stood up for her. There's no one that's helped her. No doctor could help her. She's exhausted every ounce of money and energy and strength that she has. And he says, daughter, that when we touch Jesus, when he touches us, we become a son and a daughter, regardless of our past, regardless of whatever bleeding is in our life. Daughter, he takes the time not to shame her publicly, not to point her out so people could continue to ridicule her. No, no, no. So he could let her and everyone else know, I heal. And no matter what you have in your life, bring it to me and I will heal you. And he tells her, your faith has made you whole, not my garment. The faith that you had that was given to you by me has made you whole. Now go in peace. Not just an emotional peace, but a peace in her soul. Go in peace. Beautiful picture. It's at this point that most people stop and say, I love this story. Jesus taking the time to heal this woman, calling her a daughter, bringing her into the fold. And we forget about Jairus over here who's watching this, who's thinking to himself, I know that woman. As a pastor, I, I couldn't even help her because she was unclean. I couldn't even let her in my church. It's her fault, whatever. He, my daughter is sick. I got to Jesus first. And to add insult to injury, as he's watching this, one of his servants comes up and says, Jairus, your daughter is dead. No use troubling the teacher now. Imagine that. You prostrated yourself before the Lord. You, you risked your reputation. You wept before him and said, just come and lay hands on my daughter and she will be healed. And Jesus agreed. And then some woman who you know, everyone knows, interrupts and you have to listen to that. And on top of that, your daughter is dead. How does that make you feel? I don't think Jairus was rejoicing that this woman had been healed. I don't think that he was even thinking that direction at all. I think he's probably thinking to himself, it's all for naught. I missed it. I missed God. God was too busy for me. But what's amazing is, is, is that with Jesus, when he hears this, he immediately goes to Jairus and he says, do not be afraid. Only believe. Only believe, Jairus, your daughter will be healed. Jesus responds to that, right? He's talking to this woman. People are like, whoa. And then he hears this and he immediately goes to Jairus. Hey, don't be afraid, Jairus. 
Believe, and she'll be healed. He encourages him. He's right there for Jairus too. And then he goes to the house, right? And, and they have these professional weep mourners and wailers. And, and we don't do that in our culture, right? Our, our funerals are silent. You know what I mean? Like nobody talks. It's really quiet. And then we go down in the basement and we eat food. And, and we, we just, we don't do what other people do. But in these other cultures, and I've seen this, they are people that they hire them to wail and mourn. And it is, it is it's awkward. I mean, it is, you're like, whoa. You know, you just, it, it arrests you. You're like, whoa. And you hear this and Jesus gets there. And these people, they probably aren't like genuinely sad. They've been paid to do this. And Jesus arises on the, he comes off the scene and he says, stop, quit. She's not dead. She's just asleep. Just like who touched me? And people begin to mock Jesus and laugh at him. Like we know she's dead. She's not breathing, bro. And Jesus says, yeah, he said, bro. I said, bro. It's right there in the Greek, right there. <laughs> I love what he does next is he kicks everybody out of the room. He says, get out of here. You people are driving me nuts. Get out of here. I can't work with you in the room. Get out of here. And he says, Peter, James, and John, Jairus, and your wife come with me. He walks over to where the girl is, and he says, in one translation, in one gospel you read, he says, Talitha Kalum, little girl, get up. And immediately, she's back to life. And he tells the parents, get her something to eat. I read that and one commentator said, how, how, how beautiful is that? Because Jesus, probably understanding that the parents are incredibly overwhelmed, turns to the mother, says, get her something to eat. He, he puts her right back in the position of being her mother. Go get your daughter something to eat. And then he says, hey, don't tell anybody about this. Why Jesus does that, I'm not entirely sure. I've read commentaries on it, and everybody has a different opinion, but he seems to do that. Don't tell anybody about this. But she's healed. In the end, we see that Jesus not only takes time for this woman, he takes time for this girl. Both 12 years. And as you look at this story, you think to, about, you think to yourself, what, what is going on here? What, how, how should I process this? And I really want to look at it from the angle of Jairus. What is it like to be him? What is it like to watch that? I want to just give you three things that I think are a perspective for us, that if you're waiting for God to do something and you've seen him meet other people's needs or he just hasn't acted on your behalf and you're wondering what's going on, I want to just share these three insights with you. The first one is this, is that as we look at this story, I think one of the things we see is that Jesus is not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry. See, I don't believe that God responds to pressure. I believe that he responds to need. I respond to pressure. I, I, if, if there is pressure, I want to meet the demands of the pressure. And pressure evokes emotion. And emotion evokes a snap decision, which often precludes thinking. Which often precludes a deep breath and saying, what is it that really needs to be done? How many of you say, I'm, I'm under some pressure? How many of you would say, I've made some dumb decisions under pressure? How many of you are thinking that old song? Under pressure. Dun, dun. <laughs> Maybe that's what you're thinking of. <laughs> but pressure. We, 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 are, we are pulled to and fro because of pressure. You know, God has never been pressured a day in his life. Jesus was never under pressure as he was God on this earth. He felt the pressure of humanity, but he never made a decision out of pressure. What that says to me is, is that he has the ability to know what your need is and yet respond to other needs along the way. 
He's not under pressure. If you think about it, the world has roughly like 7 billion people in it. And imagine if every single person was praying to God at one time. I get stressed when two people are asking me for something, you know? (laughs) But yet here's God in heaven, all these languages, all these cultures, all these needs, all this pressure. He's hearing it and he has the ability to hear and respond on an individual basis and never respond out of pressure. But he sees the need. The need. You know, one of the things about it is, I've heard it said about God, he's, he's rarely ever early, he's never late, but he seems to live right on the threshold of late and right on time. Right? It's like very rarely do you say, man, God acted like you know, a year in advance. He prepared me for everything. And looking back, we can say that, but it's like God, his timing is not our timing. It's not my timing. I feel pressure because I have imposed some due date on God that he's not ever going to be imposed with. Right? He can see it all. He's sovereign. He's above it all. He's outside of time and space. God is not a creature or bound by time and space. We are. God doesn't think in those terms. He's not in a hurry. He doesn't respond to pressure. He responds to need. What's beautiful about that is, is that God will meet a deeper need. See, Jesus, when he healed her physically, that was enough for her. That's what she wanted. But he stopped to let her know there is a deeper need in you, and that deeper need is emotional and spiritual and psychological, and I want to heal that. God will always deal with the root first if you'll allow him. We're frustrated because he's not giving us the money. He's not fixing our relationship. He's not doing this, and God's saying, I have to work on something deeper. If I just give you the money, you're never going to be a good steward, and you're going to be in debt again. You're going to continue to make dumb decisions. If I only fix your spouse and don't fix you, you're missing it. Maybe you need to stop praying for God to fix your spouse and let God say, hey, fix me. Maybe it's not your boss that's the problem or your coworker. Maybe it's you. And God is saying, I'm not going to fix the surface. Can he? Sure. I want to get underneath. It's like when you put a seed in the ground. How many of you plan it on Monday and go back out on Tuesday to see if anything came out? That's me. That's why I don't garden. I like, I say, when did you plant it? And when should I see it? I'll go see it. I don't, I don't like looking at an empty ground, but I also don't recognize what's being done underneath the surface is of vital importance to what happens once it comes out. God works beneath the surface and we don't like that. Are you saying that he was doing something in Jairus? I don't know. All I'm saying is, is that whatever you're asking God for, and he hasn't met that need, it doesn't mean that he's not working in the situation. It just may mean he's doing things beneath the surface that you can't see, that you have to lean into. And you're pressuring him to do what you want him to do, which I get it. I would, I would be there. But what God is saying is, let me work beneath the surface. Let me craft this. I can see what you cannot see. Let me work on that. And while he's doing that, he may be meeting outward needs of other people. And those needs, those miracles that he meets, this is the second thing, is they should serve to build our faith, strengthen our faith. I I almost thought about taking the word should out of there because it does. But really, the why I left the word should is because it's your perspective. You're going to either rejoice or you're going to be upset. That when you see God do something for someone else, you have a decision to make. Do I rejoice or do I get upset? 
And that's why when I shared that story this morning, everybody was thinking like, whoa, $50,000, that's pretty amazing. (laughs) Open your wallet, God rain down from heaven. Where's the manna, bro? You know? How do I rejoice for somebody when I need the same thing that they just talked about? It's called maturity. The toddler response over here says, well, God, you didn't. I deserve. I should. The spiritually mature response says, God, I thank you that you're faithful and you met their need. And I am happy for that person. Now, I'm not saying I'm here. I'm more often over here. How many of you take little children to a birthday party and they're asking where their gift is and it's not their birthday? It's hard when you take your kids to pick out a gift for somebody else because they're like, what am I going to get? Nothing. Just because someone else gets something doesn't mean you need to get something. Yet we find ourselves in that way with God. Well, I saw you do this for her, for him. What are you going to do for me? What happens is, is our eyes move down from what, our, what we're believing God for and focusing on him. And it starts to be all this way. And we begin to compare and prioritize our needs. I'm comparing myself with this person. Well, why did God meet their need first? I know this, 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 and this. We prioritize our need. My need's greater. The pressure's greater. The outcome is greater. And we start losing our focus and we stop thinking about faith and we're trying to make ourselves good enough for God or determine why this person wasn't good enough for God. Fight the urge to compare and prioritize your need with someone else. Fight that urge because rarely do you have the context of what they're going through. You don't know. Stop trying to know. And realize that God is not in competition. Nor does he want you to be in competition. Stop comparing. Stop prioritizing. And realize, hey, this miracle that just happened in front of me, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to thank God for it. I'm going to be happy for that person. What if I'm not? Fake it till you make it. (laughs) Truth is not a feeling. You go up to that person and you say, I'm happy for you. I'm glad that God blessed you. And then walk away and be like, (laughs) you made a decision to be mature. What's going to happen is you're going to whip those emotions into a line. Otherwise, if you don't, it's going to be the tail that wags the dog. When you see God do something for someone else, and specifically when it's the exact thing you need him to do, the first thing out of your mouth should be, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for meeting that need. I I stand with them and I rejoice with them. Because guess what? God's going to meet a need for you and you're going to tell somebody and they're going to be like, they're not going to rejoice with you. They're just going to be like a sourpuss. They're going to be offended and they're going to be frustrated because you, God did for you and he didn't do for them. Don't be that person. Rejoice together. See what God does. Because when you can do that, Then this last thing is, is you're beginning to realize that Jesus is more than enough. He's more than enough. More. See, what happens is when we watch God or we watch Jesus heal somebody else, provide for somebody else, what we think, we start to get fearful. Oh, God, if you gave them 50,000, how much you got left, man? I hope you got a good retirement program. I hope you set some money aside throughout eternity. Can you meet that need? God, you, you healed them of cancer. Can you still heal me? You, got, you did this. Is there enough left for me? 
Did you run out of time? Did you run out of space? We start thinking all these things and we get fearful. See, that's what Jesus knew about Jairus. He turned to him, don't be afraid. He knew that Jairus was afraid and rightfully so. I would have been afraid. I would have been like, "Mm, my daughter is gone. And had you been there earlier, you could have done it. Had you not stopped to meet this lady's need, you could have been there. Think about it. Jairus, he's the pastor, right? He, he, he's in charge of it all. Who does he go to when things get rough? He's tried everything he knows, and now he's going to try this Jesus guy whom Jewish people aren't really excited about and who his contemporaries, Sadducees and Pharisees and all them, they definitely don't like Jesus. He let the whole town know that he believed in Jesus because he was desperate, and now his daughter has died. He believed that Jesus was who he says he was. You see, when his servants come, they refer to Jesus as teacher. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And this image that I get of Jesus responding to Jairus when he, find, when he hears what has happened, he's so sensitive to the needs and the emotions of others as he walks over to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid. What, this picture I get is like he grabs Jairus by the, by the head and says, look at me, look at me. Don't look at what's going on. Stop listening to what you're hearing. Don't even pay attention to what that servant just told you. Look at me. You ever done that with your kids? They're freaking out. Look at me. Have you ever had somebody that just trying to get your attention something bad has happened and they maybe gently grab you and look and say, look at me, look in my eyes. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Jairus, it's not too late. I didn't miss it. I think what we need to do sometimes is when we're watching that and we're discouraged by what else is happening in someone else's life, it's like we just need to allow God to grab us by the head and say, look at me. Stop looking at and comparing and prioritizing and everything that hasn't happened. Look at me. Isaiah 45, 22, it says this. It says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Look to me and you will be saved. I believe that's what Jesus was doing for Jairus. Look at me. Look at me. And the question that I would ask this morning or this afternoon is, who are you looking at? Or better yet, what are you looking at? You're believing God to do something. What are you looking at? Who are you looking at? Is it him? See, the miracle is not the focus of this series. We run the risk of making it the focal point, but the focal point of this series is Jesus. That's why every message has centered on him and encounter with someone with him. It's him. See, Jesus, he heals in different ways. He, this, a centurion came to him and says, heal, my, heal this person in my, in my family that's sick. And Jesus said, well, I will come and go. And the centurion says, no, all you have to do is speak the word and it'll be done. Jesus says, boom, great faith. The woman comes to Jesus. Oh, I just got to touch him. Jairus says, no, you got to come and touch my daughter. Other people, you got to do this. There's no box that we can put him in. He responds at the point of our need. He heals in different ways. He provides in different ways. And we cannot say, God, you have to do it this way. He cannot be put in a box. And that's what we want to do. It's easier to believe that he can do something the way that he did it because we have a, we have a capacity, we have a construct in our mind for that. And God is saying, hey, I did it that way, but I will do it another way. And regardless, it is getting done. What are you looking at, the the method or the person? 
See, and really, it's interesting because the woman, she had like a superstitious faith. You, I have to touch his garment. This guy says, no, no, you got to come touch my daughter. And I think what he's telling us is, hey, the object of our faith is far more important than the quality of our faith. Amen. It's not how, it's who. Who is the object of our faith? And if we will fix our eyes on Jesus, say he is more than enough. That even if he doesn't answer when and how we want, we still have him. That's why he took the time with the woman. It is not my clothes. It is me. Look at me, he told her. Daughter, she's staring up in his eyes. Your faith has made you whole. Not my clothes. Jairus, look at me. I will heal your daughter. And he did. He is more than enough. And that's why we're concluding this series on Easter, looking at the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there is no miracle to believe in. If Jesus was not resurrected from the dead, maybe he was a good teacher. Maybe he was a good man, but ultimately he was a liar because he said he would be resurrected. Being crucified was not abnormal. The Romans crucified a bunch of people and they were really good at it. It's not the fact that Jesus was crucified. It's the fact that he was resurrected, that there was an empty tomb. And he was bodily resurrected, not spiritually. He's not some disembodied spiritual soul floating around. He was actually physically resurrected. That it's in him that we have this faith and this hope and this love. And as Paul said, if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, then what I am preaching is nothing. It's useless. The faith is useless. If you want your faith to be increased, may you stop looking at the need or the miracle in and of itself and allow the Holy Spirit to draw your eyes to Jesus. Because what he's doing this morning is saying, look at me. Look at me. For when we see him, we'll never be the same. Because he's more than enough. More than enough. And in our uncleanness, when we touch him, He makes us clean. He makes us whole. Which invokes for me Hebrews. Let us come to the throne of grace. That we may receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Let us come to him. Would you stand with me this morning? I want to pray for you. And as I do that, I just want to remind you, Easter's next week. I know you've heard it. The service times are different. If you show up at 9, we'll be in the middle of the service. If you show up at 10.30, we'll be in the middle of the service. Come 8, 9.45, 11.30, bring a guest with you, ask them to sit with you, and we'll see what God does in their lives. And what I want to do, again, just pray over all those needs that are on the board and even the ones that, uh, that are not to see how God continues to move in these situations and meets the needs wherever we're at. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every individual that's here this morning. I thank you, Lord, that we've, we've taken a step and we've expressed our faith in the direction of believing that you are able, you are capable, that you are a God who continues to intervene in this world. And Lord, we just believe that you're meeting every single one of these needs according to your riches and glory, which are in Christ Jesus. I thank you that you're healing the sicknesses and the diseases and the, and the cancer that has been put on that board because as David said, you heal us of every sickness and every disease that you are providing financially, God, for the needs that exist. You're healing and restoring the relationships that exist. You're bringing spouses to the Lord, children to know who you are. 
But Father, more important than any of that, may we still be open to the working of your power in the deeper areas of our lives, the things that are beneath the surface. May we not look at the need and reject or refuse to see or be crowded out the work, the deeper work that you're doing. Open our eyes, our spiritual eyes, God, and our understanding to see you are constantly working and moving on our behalf. Give us ears to see, ears to hear, and eyes to see, and the, and the understanding, God, to perceive you being at work in our lives. Increase our faith. Help us, Holy Spirit, to continue to look at the person of Jesus. And we prayed in his name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.